Hello, and welcome to this episode of Beyond the Green Line podcast. I'm your host, Chanel Gleason Willey. Our guest today is James Hammond, founder and director of Four Pillars Environmental Consulting in Sydney, where he manages a team of young professionals. James has a strong scientific and professional skills background and a passion for pragmatic environmental management. I wanted to talk to James today about his journey to becoming an environmental consultant and whether he had any tips or advice for young people. Hi and welcome. Buckle up for a new episode of Beyond the Green Line, the only podcast hooking you up for a virtual coffee date with some of the leading change makers, industry experts and everyday activists in environmental and agricultural sciences. So pop in your headphones, go for a walk and get ready for inspiration, ideas, insights and real life stories beyond the green line we balance along. Hi, James, and thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here. No worries, Chanel. Thank you. So you're the founder of Four Pillars Consulting Services in Sydney, and you've been running the business for about five years now, uh, roughly about the same amount of time as we've been in, in operation here Yeah, Hamworth. Can you tell me a bit more about your business? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we provide a pretty wide range of services. They're sort of grouped loosely into three practice areas. Um, the first one is um, around environmental management and compliance. The second area is around um, contaminated land and waste management. And the third is around impact assessment and approvals. So our team sort of roughly um, grouped into those um, into those practice areas and we've got um, between three to five staff in each of those teams. Mm. And starting a business from scratch in Sydney uh, must have been so different to what I experienced here in regional New South Wales. Um, what did it look like? To, to actually get the business off the ground? It was kind of a typical startup story, I suppose. It literally started in a garage, just like, just like Apple and so many other companies do. Um, it started off really um, grassroots, simple. Um, it was just me in the beginning. I had, you know, two or three clients in the beginning and just via word of mouth, um, the business just organic, organically grew from there. Um, so, you know, in terms of the complexity of the operation, the complexity of the work that we're doing and, and all of that sort of thing, it's just um, grown naturally, I suppose, o- over those five years. Um, but yeah, literally just started um, just me and a laptop in the beginning. Mm. Yeah, it was, I guess, same here. With um, some of the other people that I know who started businesses in, in the city, um, they fell into the trap of becoming contractors or sub contracting to to other businesses um, for a very, very long time. But I believe you've managed to break out of that. Was that an issue for you at any point? It certainly can be a strain because there's so much demand um, for people in the environmental profession, um, particularly in Sydney at the moment. I think it is quite easy to fall into doing contract work and sort of subcontracting to other firms. Um, and that had certainly has been a, a presented an opportunity and a challenge for us over the last few years. And um, I have actually done that kind of work and I've been involved in secondments myself into other organisations. But I think, you know, long term, it, it's, um, it's not really a good option, particularly for a founder to be doing that, 
because it does take up so much time and the return for that time is not necessarily there for that kind of work. Um, so in terms of how I've avoided it, I, I don't know that I have necessarily completely avoided it. I've sort of fallen into that um, once or twice in the last five years, but but certainly now um, I've made the decision in my mind that it's it's not a part of our strategy. It's not a part of the package of services that that um, I'm offering going forward. So I guess just making that distinction in my mind has made it a bit easier. Yeah, definitely. And as you said, being the founder and therefore the leader of your business, when you do step out of that role to go onto these secondments, um, that role it doesn't happen, it gets left vacant, or you don't do it to as good a job as what you would like. Exactly. Yeah. So what's... Um, what sort of personal skills would you say are most important uh, for you as a leader to possess for your company? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a whole range of skills. I think running a small business, you, particularly in the early stages, you are really everything to that business. You, you need to wear every single hat um, that, that a typical business um, has. And so the difficulties, I think, particularly early on are about knowing what you can and can't do and knowing your own limits and having a plan in place for um, the type of help that you're going to bring in when, when you reach the, the, the limit of um, what you can effectively deliver. So that's a big thing for me is about sort of building your network and having that support around you. Um, but there's also a few other things that I think sort of come to mind that are quite important. I think for me personally, I've always been a fairly level-headed person and I sort of, I tend not to get too high and not too low. And I think that that's really important when you're riding the ups and downs and the the, the positive and negative things that come with um, building a business. Um, so I think that, you know, paired with uh, patience and just understanding that things take time um, and that building a business is a grind a lot of the time. And, and you know, it's all about perseverance and, and putting in sustained effort over a period of time and and that's what will get you the gains um it's like a lot of things you know things don't happen overnight it does it does take that persistence yeah definitely what um size um business do you have at the moment how many employees we are 14 now Mm -hmm. um and and recruiting another one or two sort of in the next few months so we're sort of we're up around that 15 to 20 mark yeah, and with um, your systems that you put in place, have you uh, have you put a lot of effort and in, into systemizing the admin side, or have you gone down the route of employing admin staff? Um, I, I think I suppose what we've done is we've I've always designed the systems that we use with a view to the company being bigger. So there are choices that have to be made in the early days about you know what software platforms you'll be using and what and what tools the team will be using. And even though we were only two or three people at that point, I did a lot of work to actually um, assess different options and to decide on, on systems that would cater for a team of 20 or 40 or 80. Um, so that's always been something that I, I think I've, I've been quite happy looking back about the decisions that I've made about the tools that we have. Um, so that's definitely been a big part of it. Mm. If there was one piece of advice that you could offer to somebody looking to start their own business in our industry, in the environmental industry, what would that be? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I, I mean, there's so many things that come to mind, but this is, it might sound like a little bit of a cliche, but, and it's a really, really hard thing as well. But honestly, one of the best things I think you can do is actually to try and start your business with the end in mind. Um, 
easier said than done. It's incredibly hard. And I mean, if you ask me now, do I know what the end looks like? I'd, I'd probably still say no, but it's something that's really important to um, to have a good think about in the beginning and, and at least even if it changes over time to have some concept of that. Um, the reason for that is really that um, the end goal that you have, you know, whether that is um, building up to a point where you are acquired, um, you know, building something that will earn you passive income in the long term, or even something that, you know, building a company that you intend to run until you retire, and then you can pass it on to, you know, your family or, or somebody else. All of those different approaches and different end goals will come back to different strategies as to how you actually approach growth and management of the company. So it's really important, I think, to have at least some concept in the beginning as to what that looks like. And it's okay if it changes over time, you can always adjust. But without that, I think it, I think it becomes really hard to, um, to set effective strategies. I completely agree with you. It's something that we've talked a lot about in business coaching. Uh, I'm a big advocate for business coaching when you are a small business owner. And yeah. you're, you're 100% right uh, for me as well in that starting with the end in mind is, is crucial, uh, but extremely extremely difficult uh, because, Absolutely. yeah, because the, I mean, you might say, oh, well, I'd love to be acquired by a much bigger company, bought out, go and relax in a tropical island somewhere. But the reality is you don't actually know if that's going to happen. So, um, well, well, that's, that's, that's exactly right. And I think the thing is that um, even if, yeah, if that was, say that was your goal, I mean, you really do still need to run the business day to day, pretending like that's not going to happen. Because I think once you, uh, if you sort of take your foot off the gas a little bit and sit back and think, oh, well, I'm just going to wait until, uh, you know, an acquisition um, opportunity comes up, um, that's when you fall behind because that's one of the challenges with particularly in, in all business but particularly small business. I think if you're not constantly moving forward, then you're the one falling behind. And, you know, it is, it is um, particularly in Sydney um, and I'm sure it is in regional areas as well, it's a competitive market. Um, and so it really is important to just to keep um, focusing on on the business and keep um, doing the best you can. Um, otherwise, yeah, you might find that this asset that you've spent so much time and energy building actually starts to devalue. Mm. So your background is in biodiversity conservation and wildlife habitat management. Yes. With about five years experience as a policy officer with the government. So yes. can you tell me, uh, I guess, a about your your roots and um, where you went to university and how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, the five years that I spent in um, in sunny sunny Canberra. Actually, I'm pretty glad at this time of year not to be down there. There's about a 15 degree difference, I think, between Sydney and Canberra. So I'm, I'm much happier being here where it's a, a little bit warmer. Um, but you know, looking back to to my study, you know, I, I did study um, ecology and, and and wildlife management. Um, you know, with a view to working in an industry like national parks or some kind of a land management role. But when I graduated, it was uh, just at the, well, just in the beginning really of the um, the GFC and there was a lot of contract, contraction in the market and there wasn't really a lot of opportunities and there certainly wasn't many opportunities in the um, ecological consulting space. So, I think this is an issue that's been around for a very long time. So many of our guests yeah. say the same thing, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's and I mean, it's it still is difficult for graduates to find work, um, particularly work that's really aligned with what they see themselves doing long term. Um, 
So what I ended up doing was I actually took a role that was um, really completely different to what I had any intention of doing. So my first job was at a company called Austral Bricks, which is a great company. Um, they manufactured bricks and building products. And, and my role there was a compliance officer and um, really focused on manufacturing facilities and mines and all of the um, the sort of I, I kind of call it the green and the brown side of environment. So the green is the the ecology and the uh, the natural sort of settings, and the brown is the industrial, you know, heavy industrial pollution based um, remediation, you know, remediation, environmental management side of things. So so that's the side that I sort of ended up in. But but you know, weirdly enough, I actually found that I quite liked it. Um, and the change that I made when I left that company, I was there for three years. When I left that company and moved to Canberra to work in government, it was really a conscious decision that I made to go back and try and, um, I, I guess, have some experience in the, in the area that I thought I wanted to work in and just really see whether it was a good fit for me and just kind of con- contrast it to my experience with um, with Brickworks. Mm. It's, a again, uh, I said it before, but it's a similar story to a lot of people and, and definitely to my own story. So, at university, I did um, environmental management and fell in love with landscapes. So I really wanted, again, to work for national parks and, and manage landscapes. That's where my passion was. Um, after uni, I fell into contaminated land management. And it was a real struggle internally for me going, oh, I wanted to be working on the green side, but I'm well and truly on the brown side. Um, yeah. But I guess a bit of advice for people who maybe find themselves in a similar situation coming out of university and get uh, maybe a bit disheartened, is mm. that that experience is not wasted and it is so valuable. Um, and I did end up falling in love with it as well, but it, it really set me up for the future. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. It, it, I mean, it is one of the great things about our our industry and our profession is that there is so much um, interconnectedness between the different disciplines. And um, yeah, absolutely agree with you. No, none of that experience is wasted. Um, it will just make you better at whatever that next role is, um, the, the fact that you've got an understanding of this kind of parallel part of the industry, um, it, it will help you no matter what. Mm. So are there any really uh, interesting projects that you worked on uh, through your time with the government? Yeah, uh, there was there was a bunch. I think that working in government was a really good experience overall. Um, it really helped seeing how Things worked on the regulatory side, and and you know, and how decisions are made there, and 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 particularly, and sort of up and down the hierarchy of um, of um, policy making, and you know, th- through the public service and all the way up to sort of executive government, it was really interesting to see the mechanics of all that. I think for me, the, hands down, the best and most interesting thing that I got to work on was for a couple of years. I um I worked with a team that actually. Um, it was Australia's representation uh, in the United Nations Biodiversity Convention. So the Convention on Bio- Biological Diversity is what it's called. It's a United Nations treaty and international agreement that was created at the same time as the UNFCCC, so the climate change um, framework. Um, it was created at the same time in 1992 and um, it involves um, you know countries coming together um, every couple of years at what they call COPs or conferences of the parties, um, and the 196 member states that are that are, are signatory to the um, the biodiversity treaty um, come together and negotiate a whole range of decisions around how um, at a global scale biodiversity will be managed. Um, 
and that 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 was just an unbelievable experience for me. I got there was a huge amount of work that goes into that that um, those kinds of um, meetings behind the scenes. So there's about you know uh, a six to eight month lead up to those cops where there's just this intense load of work and intense um, negotiating behind the scenes to try and come up with um, agreed whole of government positions before you even get there. Um, but yeah, I was lucky, luckily enough when I was working in that position to actually travel to Canada and Mexico, um, to attend those meetings. And they were just, they were sort of what you imagine these, these international meetings to be just huge halls with hundreds and hundreds of people with little, with all the country nameplates in front of them and everybody having their say in debating these decisions that would be made and then taken back to all of our various nations and implemented you know, through, through, um, domestic law. So it was a really interesting experience. Um, yeah. And there was just, uh, there's too, too many highlights sort of from those meetings to kind of, to kind of go through, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, it taught me so much about negotiating and, um, and just interacting with people from different backgrounds. So on negotiating, my experience in those sorts of settings, when you have so many parties with so many different interests is that the negotiating part is, really interesting, but really long-winded. And quite often you end up walking away going, I don't think we actually got anywhere today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Is that how it actually works in in those meetings? Yeah, definitely. And there's definitely something to be said for time pressure. So, you know, the the, the COP in Mexico took place over a two-week period and um, the intensity uh, and and the length of the days and the length of the sessions actually just um, got longer and longer. And there were many times where you felt like we are just at a dead end. Um, but there's so many sort of meetings in the margins going on and you, you come back the next day and, you know, and somebody's managed to change somebody else's mind over, a, you know, over a cocktail at the bar the, the, the night before. It's, it's really interesting how you can feel like you're getting nowhere and then all of a sudden just one domino falls and then all of a sudden, uh, uh, you know, we've got agreement. Yeah. the I've just been um, listening to an audio book at the moment um, called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And That's a great book. Yeah, it, I love that book. Yeah, yeah. How good is it? Um, so it amazing. would have been, uh, yeah, amazing in those sorts of um, those meetings. Oh, absolutely. And the, the other interesting thing with the CBD is that that particular treaty, decisions are uh, taken by consensus. So it really is a matter of needing to bring everybody along with you because if, even if there is one dissenting party, um, it can actually bring down a whole negotiation. So it's a really interesting dynamic um, and, and it really is a, it's an equaliser of power as well. So um, it's, it's, it's actually one of those international forums where the US is actually, um, it holds almost no power um, because, in, I mean, interestingly enough, the, the US actually isn't a party to that agreement. They're sort of there as an observer, but they try and exercise their power. But um, it's interesting to see when they're out of that position, um, who who else then steps in to try and take the lead on issues. Um, and yeah, it's amazing to see smaller countries really feeling like they have a real say in what's doing because they know that if they're not um, brought along and, and, and they're not able to vote along with the others, that, um, that they actually can sway decisions in their favour. Yeah, that's really interesting. So did you get given any uh, specific training for attending these? Uh, Not really, no. We sort of just uh, did some internal training, I think, and um, we actually did a mock session, which I think was really useful. We actually, the team that I was in, um, I actually was responsible for for 
for putting it together, we actually did almost like a, a model UN type situation. If anyone's ever done anything like that, and and we actually did take you know several varying opposing positions, and we actually did a mock session where we where we actually had to um, work work with each other to come up with some some theoretical agreements. Hmm. I guess that would have been all the training that you really needed because you would have known your area of expertise, the topics, and yeah, just well, being exposed thing, to it. And at, I mean, at, at the time, I mean, it was still, you know, it's it's nice thinking back because it was a time where, you know, travel was still done freely and that sort of thing. But, you know, budgets were pretty constrained. I mean, at the time, so we were we were operating under the, uh, the I think it was the Abbott government at the time. So, uh, so uh, a government that didn't um, philosophically believe in um, some functions of the public service. So, so budgets were definitely constrained and the teams that were sent to these meetings were significantly smaller than what was sent in the past. So Australia would sometimes send delegations of 30, 40, 50 people to these, to these um, sessions and we had a team of eight that went to ours, which, which still sounds like a lot. But um, what it meant was that, you know, we were dealing with probably 40 different specific um, negotiating topics. So each of us really had to carry quite a number of those topics um, ourselves. And so we really did have to have quite a deep knowledge of a range of um, of policy areas that, that were actually quite different to each other. Mm. The current government that we've, um, I guess, has just changed has had a huge change in their approach to climate change. So yes. do you think that's going to flow through? Um, are we going to see larger delegations and a lot more emphasis put on these types of meetings and climate change management um, in those forums? Yeah, I, I really think so. I think that, um, I mean, yeah, you might be able to tell I'm a bit of a bit of a politics nerd now, and I wasn't, but I became one when I went to Canberra. So it sucked me in the it sucked me into the bubble. Um, but from what I've seen, yeah, the the, the new uh, Labor government, I think they've definitely got more of a focus on multilateral relations, and I think that it's been demonstrated by the travel and the um. Yeah, the meetings that they've held overseas already, um, and so I think that it is coming back on the agenda in a big way. And I think that Australia will be seen again as a leader in this space. And it's been quite some time since that's been the view of other countries. And I think that um, I think leadership is really sorely needed. So I think it's a really good time for Australia to step up. Definitely, I agree with you there. So when you were doing these meetings, um, obviously this wasn't your entire job, but um, which department were you working for? It was, at the time, the Department of Environment and Energy, but it's had so many different names. Um, it was it was SUPAC before that, which is a terrible, terribly long acronym. Um, and I actually, I must admit, I actually don't know from the latest machinery of government changes what the department's called. I think it it was merged with agriculture and I think it may be out on its own again. But I, yeah, I'd have to take that one on notice. I actually haven't checked what it is now. Yeah, I haven't checked in the last few weeks either. So I, I uh, can't enlighten you on that. I'm not sure either. Yeah. But I think, I mean, uh, just my take on the the sort of um, the merging of, of departments as well is, is an interesting one because um, I think it's important for departments, for their functions to be really clear. And I think it becomes difficult sometimes when, um, environment and environment, energy and climate change matters kind of emerged with a department like a primary industries department or an agricultural department because their priorities can be quite different. And I think if they can't internally work out a clear um, idea of, of, of who they are and what they're trying to achieve, um, it can make for poor policy. 
Mm. So I guess a lot is to be said for the fact that we are seeing aggregation of a lot of the different departments um, more and more. They, they, they did split apart now. They seem to be coming back together. So it'd be interesting to see yeah. what the future holds in that regard as to yeah, whether we end up with watering down of um, funding policies or the rest yeah. of it. Absolutely. But it does, uh, domestically, it seems like, you know, environment is sort of taking a bit more um, of, of the fore in, um, in this new government as well. So I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, and the conversation, um, definitely. Yeah. So you can't really also handle projects on impact assessment and contaminated lands with four pillars. Yes. Um, what would you say is the most common environmental contaminant that you've come across and how persistent is it in the environment? I think, yeah, that's a really good question. And I, there's a number of different things that come to mind really, but I think I have to go with my gut. And um, the number one contaminant we deal with all the time is asbestos in contaminated land, particularly in Sydney. I think 90% of the houses that were built in Sydney were, were you know, have asbestos in them in some form or another. Um, and so it really is just such a, you know, ubiquitous common contaminant in Sydney that um, it, it comes up on pretty much every site that we deal with. And uh, we're talking about here asbestos fragments in soil, uh, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah, more, more often than not, yeah. So a lot of your work then I guess would involve the soil sampling to identify there's asbestos there. Uh, do you still do air monitoring for asbestos fibres? Yeah, well, we work with subcontractors who do that for us but uh, who are specialised occupational hygienists. But, yeah, that's certainly part of it. Um, because obviously, you know, asbestos is what is, in terms of its pathway and how it actually becomes a risk for people. You know that that um, airborne fiber pathway is is really how it affects people, um, and so that's really what we're primarily concerned about. So yeah, air monitoring is even if it's not um, required by law, we we tend to do air monitoring on on all of those kinds of projects. And the asbestos projects that you work on, are they now pretty much always wrapped up into change of land use or development um, going ahead on a, on a block? Yeah, a lot of the time they're, they're sort of captured by the planning system. Mm. Um, and I could probably spend way too long talking about the, you know, the, what's good and bad about that. But, um, but certainly that's the majority of, um, of that work. Um, and sometimes they are expected fines, and and there's there's information to to um, give us a bit of a heads up that, that that is going to be an issue on the site. And then other times we're dealing with a lot of unexpected fines of, of asbestos, and sort of um, having to work pretty quickly and coming up with strategies to how how we actually can deal with the risk, but also not necessarily hold up a construction program, which, as you know you know, time time is huge money on construction sites. So there's always quite a time pressure in those situations. Mm. And when it comes back to um, impact assessment for uh, these projects, I guess, right at the development stage, what mm. sorts of impact assessments do you often do in Sydney? We we, we, we cover the gamut really. So we're, we're looking at um, mostly noise, water quality, air quality um, and biodiversity are sort of the, the big ones for us. Um, biodiversity is sort of um, we're dealing with a lot of a lot of sites that already have existing developments on them, so we're not typically dealing with large greenfield sites. So biodiversity, uh, you know, is typically um, restricted to sort of more local local issues, local fauna um, issues, and, and those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, certainly um, 
air, noise, and water are the big three for us. Yeah. Okay. So I, I guess a big change of really the opposite to what we deal with in regional Australia, because um, ecology, biodiversity is a huge part of what we do, whereas yeah. noise isn't so much of an issue. We don't have that many people. Um, yeah, well, and, and that's it. And that's, I suppose, one of the big differences with, um, you know, um, people living on top of each other in, in Sydney. Noise is really like a pervasive, uh, a pervasive issue here. Mm. So for the ecologist in you, do you ever get to go out and do any uh, projects in national parks or um, forestry or, or anything like that where you, where you really get to get your hands back into that space? Yeah, definitely. Occasionally we do. Um, and the, one of the luxuries of being the director is I get to pick and choose which um, which field work I do. So if I'm not interested, I, I have to politely ask somebody else to do it in my team. But yeah, definitely when the really uh, the nice projects come up and they often are in in regional areas or, um, you know, just outside of Sydney in, in say the Blue Mountains or, or the Southern Highlands, um, I always take those opportunities to, to get out on site and, you know, where there's a bit more of a natural setting for the project we're working on definitely yeah it's always nice to get out and about and have a look at some some landscapes and um get back to nature uh yeah absolutely and i would say i mean without sort of going off on too much of a tangent um about the offset scheme and how it works in new south wales i think that for me even at just the small scale that we work on um i have actually seen the offset scheme and and the sort of um the clarity of the financial implications of clearing um, and biodiversity impacts really helping people like us make arguments um, for avoidance. So if we're looking at you know that kind of mitigation hierarchy, um, just the com- even just the complexity of the offset scheme and, and the additional risk that it brings um, is often a really good um, tool that that we can use at the early stages to say to someone you know. If it looks like there's going to be an impact that will trigger offsets, we can really use that and say, look, maybe you want to reconsider um, the arrangement of your site or the micro-siting of particular things on here to avoid clearing of a particular um, threatened um, ecological community or a particular area of native veg. Um, and it's really powerful. And we've actually got some good avoidance outcomes from using that um, almost as a bit of a deterrent. So that's been an interesting little trend that we're seeing on, on, our, on our projects. Yeah, and it's fairly recently that this is, I guess, um, this tool has been brought to the industry for us to use in the in terms of environmental accounting and green accounting, as um, as it's called. And it's something that was sorely lacking because I remember when um, I first started in the industry, and it's probably the same with you, that we used to have to be excellent um, at arguments to try and persuade people's opinions about why they should value the environment. But now uh, it's a requirement. So yeah, uh, it, it doesn't require yeah. so much of our time in, in those persuasive arguments. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and I mean, you know, people have various views, I suppose, on the offset scheme and the kind of um, um, finance, you know, commercialization or monetization of, of biodiversity, which, um, you know, which which doesn't sit well with a lot of people, and I and I completely understand that. But what it does do is it allows us to, I think, talk in the same language as um as people who uh, you know deal with finance and and economics. It allows us to speak the same language and um to kind of level the playing field and for them to understand what the actual economic impacts um or what the what the impacts are to their bottom line of um, decisions around biodiversity. Yeah. And a lot of the world obviously um, comes back to economics and just like in your um, your COPS meetings where um, the US was trying to flex their muscles as the, yeah. the big player in the room, uh, it's the same here. 
it's leveled that, that playing field and, and brought everybody onto the, the same page, which um, Absolutely. is always going to end up in a better outcome. So going back to um, asbestos, it's, I guess it's a, a very common contaminant. We deal with it all across Australia. It's been around as a contaminant for a long time. Um, what do you see is the future for remediation and obviously the cleanup we're hoping we'll get to an end at some point um, because we've stopped manufacturing and using asbestos. But um, yeah, yeah, where do you see it going? Yeah, I, I think it's one of those contaminants that will have a long tail. And I mean, like you said, we will get there, but I think it's, you know, I look, I don't think we'll get there in my career in terms of it, it no longer being um, it no longer being a contaminant of concern. Um, I, I certainly think I'll be dealing with it throughout my career. So um, in terms of where we're heading with it I, I, and, I, and in terms of the policy approaches we need, I really think that, um, you know, getting good consistency across um, across different levels of government and different agencies as to how we're managing it um, is, is a really key thing. Um, and even really simple things about, uh, you know, getting understanding of the, of the different terminologies and the different um, tolerances that we have for it in our, um, you know, in developments and that sort of thing is really critical to align the, uh, you know, the WHS side of things, and the environmental contamination side of things. And I think there's some good work being done there um, between the EPA and, and SafeWork and other agencies in doing that. Um, but, yeah, I, I still think it's a work in progress. So one thing I've learned throughout uh, my career is that to be an effective environmental scientist or consultant in whichever area of the field you end up working in, it's really important to broaden your understanding through um, volunteer work for different industry associations um, and, you know, committees and that sort of thing. So I believe that you're very heavily involved with EIA and Z. Uh, how yeah. have you found that organisation? Yeah, it, it's been fantastic. And, you know, I, I have to admit, and I'm pretty open with this about uh, with everyone on the committee, I, I when I joined the committee in 2017, this, this is the New South Wales Division Committee of um, of the Environment Institute of Australia and New Zealand. I should clarify. When I joined the committee, it was it was mostly for selfish reasons. I have to be honest. It was I, I'd moved back to Sydney and I really didn't have much in the way of a professional network, and so there was a call at the time for someone you know for someone to take up the role of secretary on that division. Um, and so I jumped at that opportunity really just so I could um, meet people in the industry um, and sort of get a bit of an understanding about where where things were. But, you know, f from doing that, I've just sort of, I've really, you know, fallen in love with the organisation and what they do. And, um, yeah, I, th I think I'm a lifer with them now. I think I'll be, I'll be there sort of um, banging the drum for them for a long time. <laughs> and are you still the secretary? Uh, I've moved on to a role as the treasurer now in the New South Wales division. Um, where our, the, our treasurer resigned a couple of years ago, um, and so um, having, I think, being a small business owner really helped in that respect because the role of treasurer involves a lot of the um, the bookkeeping and the and, and maintenance of the financial side of the division and making sure they're in a, a healthy financial financial position, and that sort of knowledge isn't that common necessarily unless you've sort of been in this kind of a position so um i think it made sense for me to step into that role and i guess people um have the opportunity to step into roles like that in industry associations when they might not necessarily have um all the skills or as much experience as 
I guess people who already work in the financial industry. But it does definitely. it definitely gives you that that um that insight and that the you know the great learnings that come along with that just jumping in and doing the role and learning as you go. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And and there's and there's support involved in that. And you know, there was some training that I went through um to assist with that. So um you know, I'm, I'm sure other um, peak bodies would be the same. They would support people who are on their committees. And um, I suppose the other thing just in relation to the INZ is that um, it's a volunteer committee as well. So um, there are other organisations um, where they're paid positions. Um, and so I think that the, 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 the dynamics um, can be a little bit different, I suppose, as to whether they're paid or not. But, yeah, certainly for us, we're, we're a volunteer organisation um, but they're always willing to invest in training and upskilling of people who are on the committee. Mm. And what do you do mostly um, with the New South Wales chapter? Is it is it training for uh, members or education events? Yeah, our, our goal is really to deliver value for for the members in New South Wales, and a lot of that is about um, events delivery and uh, you know and delivering events that people are interested about will will further their um professional development or keep them up to date on the on the latest of what's happening in, in a particular area um of course the last 2 years have been really difficult with event delivery and we had to really move the whole the whole um organization had to move to an online only um delivery of that and so there was a a, a large amount of seminars that were being pumped out and and it was really great and I, we've we actually had some feedback from members in regional areas to say that the last two years has actually been great for them because it's improved their access to a broader range of events and, and information. And so one that's one of the really that's one of the good things I suppose to have come out of that time and something that we're looking to maintain. So we're now talking about within our division that there should be there should really be no no more events or very few events that are sort of in person only. We're we're really looking to continue the online events and the seminars um, and then for in-person events to offer them as hybrids, so to offer them as either live-streamed or recorded um, events that people in regional areas um, or even people who can't simply make it in person um, can actually access that information. And, um, yeah, I I found that really interesting myself as well because we, my wife and I had a baby uh, nine months ago and so I found that... um, you know, you know that obviously requires you to schedule your time a lot better, and and you know that five or six pm t- slot where we used to have a, where we used to run a lot of events is quite difficult to get to for for new parents because that's that's um bath time or bedtime. So um, having those recorded sessions makes it really easy for me to be able to do those events when it suits me. Multitasking. <laughs> yeah. And um, congratulations on oh, thank you the birth of your first child. That's our first, yeah, and a little boy, nine months old. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So that, I guess the the events um, and getting your um, CPD points, um, it was something that was a big, seemingly a big issue for the people who interviewed me for my CNVP um, certification. And they yeah. asked me that exact question, how was I planning on getting my 100 hours um, to to maintain the certification? and Luckily for me personally, um, because I'm also part of um, IECA, there was a lot of um, online events already. And as a board member, I, I did go to a lot of those events. So 
that for me wasn't a major issue, but I can see where you're coming from that for people who don't have that involvement, it becomes either a, a real impost on time because you have to fly, well, did have to fly to these events and then um, often stay overnight or yeah. just not able to be done from a financial perspective. Um, you know, it, it ends up costing so much to, yes. to attend. So the, the change to hybrid has been a great thing for, yeah, for regional um, environmental related professionals. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just, it's absolutely something we should keep keep doing. And um, as we get better and better and as the technology gets better, it will just allow even more interaction between people who are based in cities and people who are based in regional areas and just allows us all to expand our network because we've all got such valuable things to contribute that, um, we, you know, it, it, it's... um. It would be a shame to have a network that was just solely, you know, restricted to the geographic area you're in. There's, there's so much more to the profession than that. Mm, definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, James. It's no been worries. really great having you on this episode. Um, and I'm sure that you're going to be a source of inspiration for a lot of our listeners, especially those who are new to the industry. Uh, so, again, thank you for your time today. Oh, you're too kind. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Green Line, brought to you by Moss Environmental. Subscribe to our podcast for your weekly invitation to join the conversation. Until next time, keep thinking green.